Welcome to Journey Church. My name is Jake, and I'm the student pastor here. And uh, it is a privilege to be sharing with you on the topic of peer, peer pressure this morning to close up this series. We're moving into a new series next week that centers around the Holy Spirit. And so uh, that'll be interesting as well. I hope you'll come back. But this series has been really good. It's really practical, um, which is not my forte at all. I'm a big picture kind of guy. And so uh, when people come to me and say, Jake, I need help, I say, read your Bible. They're like, no, tell me how to read my Bible. I'm like, read your Bible. Let's just read your Bible, you know. That's, that's, that's my mantle. That's what I operate on. So this is really a stretch for me to be able to do something practical. Uh, but it's, it's, it's a blessing to be here. Uh, let's just go ahead and get the awkwardness out of the way. I'm 25 and a half years old, and I'm up here talking about parenting. And most of you are older than me. Some of you are well old enough to be my parents and grandparents. And so, hey, <laughs> and so it's just, let's just get that out of the way. But somehow, by the grace of God and by miraculous acts, I am actually robustly qualified to speak on this topic because I have four kids, and ranging from ages seven to two, I'm about five and a half years in youth ministry. I've had the privilege of meeting hundreds of students and ministering to hundreds of students over the past few years, and man, it's been a blessing. I know a lot about teenagers, uh, maybe because yesterday I was one, but... <laughs> I got some insight, and so I'm looking forward to journeying through this with you uh, as, we, as we go on. But before we get started, I'll tell you a story. My best friend, uh, I never thought I'd have a best friend, but I, I had one. I got on staff at another church before this, and I was doing middle school ministry, and he was doing high school ministry. He was the official youth pastor, even though I was a youth pastor as well. And uh, he told this story one time, and uh, it really hit home with me. He said, that he was down there uh, at the beach in Panama City, which pray for Panama City right now with Hurricane Michael. That was destructive. Um, but he was down there, and he was sitting on the beach with his wife, and they had two kids at the time. And uh, I don't know if you know too much about the beach, but it's really awkward if you sit in front of someone or behind someone. You kind of spread out horizontally to get the full scope of the beach. And so they set themselves up with their chairs there and their umbrellas, and they spent several hours there. And he looks over to his right, and he's been kind of studying uh, the whole day, and there's a mom with a couple of teenage girls uh, over to his right there. And they're sitting in the chair with their umbrella with their shades on, and they got their cell phones, and they're doing this the whole time. And they're laughing, and they're, it's all, I mean, they're having a full-blown conversation with someone that they're not looking at. And here's the beach, you know. And so after uh, a couple hours, they stand up, the girls do, and they fix their hair, and they make sure their shades are on right, and uh, of course, they're probably not wearing enough clothes as they should be, and they get out there a little closer to the water, and they turn around and they start taking selfies of themselves at the beach, and then they call the mom or authority figure, whatever, over here, and they get her to take pictures of them at the beach, and they're like doing crazy stuff and jumping and pretending to kick each other in the photos, and they're really awesome, and it is a action-packed five minutes at the beach, and then they go back to their chairs, and they sit down, and they're doing this for a couple more hours. And that describes exactly the lives of our teenagers in today's society. Counterfeit experience is what I like to call it. That's exactly what they have. We provide them, or at least try to, with opportunities to experience many different things on many different levels, but they only want the surface because they're so easily satisfied, and they live in a world that revolves around the perception of other people. And so how do we minister to that? Are we guilty of the same thing? These are questions that we have to examine as we think about peer pressure. Because what is peer pressure? Well, defined peer pressure is influence from others that influence, that have a 
a, 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 a way of changing the way that we think and act that can be both positive and negative, right? There's positive peer pressure and there's negative peer pressure. And so today we're going to talk mostly about negative peer pressure because that's what you want to avoid. And so let's jump into that. You know, uh, we're going to start in the book of Luke chapter 2. I don't do super well with topical messages. If you'll notice, on Sunday nights, we preach through a book of the Bible. Number one, because I love the Bible, and number two, because I'm not very creative. And so I always know what I'm going to be preaching on next week. You know, it's just the next few verses. And so peer pressure is funny because uh, a lot of times you go to the concordance at the back of the Bible, and it's got all these topics outlined. Well, peer pressure wasn't, wasn't one of those in my Bible. Okay, so what do you do with peer pressure? And so Google's always faithful. It brought back about 5 million results, you know, on verses on peer pressure. The first one pops up, 30 verses on peer pressure. And you know, I got a little bit of an educational background in Bible. I'm, I'm in my eighth year of postgraduate education. I start reading these verses and I'm like, no, these have nothing to do with peer pressure. Somebody's taking this wildly out of context and just applying it to peer pressure. What does the Bible say about peer pressure? And so I'm going to look this morning at Luke chapter 2. On the screen I have, uh, I hope I have verses 51 and 52. And I apologize for this because I'm actually going to read a little more than that. I'm going to start in verse 48 and read through 52. So if you have your Bible or on your phone or whatever, you can look at that. But I'll give you a little bit of the scope of what's going on. And so Jesus is uh, a kid, right, in Luke chapter 1. That's what we get is the Christmas narrative. Christmas is right around the corner. We're starting to get the feels for that. And so Jesus is born in Bethlehem. And then uh, the next time we see Jesus, he's in Egypt. A lot of people miss this. When the wise men come, he's actually a toddler at that point. He's not a baby. So the wise men actually give gifts to him, but he says no. You know what I'm saying? Because that's what toddlers do. If you've never had a toddler and you don't know what that no is when you hand him a gift, that's what Jesus is doing in Egypt. And uh, so we don't see Jesus again until right here in the end of Luke chapter 2. Thankfully, Luke was a doctor, and he was detail-oriented in his writing of the gospel. The other gospel writers left some details out. But Luke was really good. He had terrible handwriting because he was a doctor, but the details are there. And so we have a little account of Jesus at age 12, and then we don't hear about Jesus at all until all of a sudden we look at chapter 3, and he's a 30-year-old man with a beard and rocking mandals, okay? And so there's 18 years of Jesus' life that are absolutely absent from the Word of God. And what does this mean? How do we interpret this? What was Jesus like as a teenager, as a young adult? And so let's look at his parents uh, and what happens here is that Joseph and Mary are very, uh, they're very Jewish, and they're very uh, following the law of that day. And so Jesus is to the point where he's becoming a young man at 12. I know that's hard to believe for us in this culture. But he's becoming a young man at 12 years old, and they take him to the temple to teach him the law, to have him sit under uh, people there and to dedicate him in such a fashion and do what the law commands, and they fulfill that. And they bring him over there at the Feast of the Passover. And I'm just going to read from verse 48 to 52. And you'll see 51 and 52 up here. And when his parents, uh, excuse me, uh, just a little portion I missed. And so while they're at the temple, they lose Jesus, right? So parents of the year, they lose Jesus and they can't find him. And their anxiety builds. And we can see this in a couple of verses here. And they're looking for him. Where's Jesus? They're really going to wrangle him up when they find him. Because he's obviously doing something mischievous and wrong. That's what they think. And then when they find Jesus, in verse 48, it says, When his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father, uh, behold, I've been searching for you in great distress. Your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Hey, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Doing my father's business, right? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. 
Verse 51 says, And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. And so before you want to think about what the effects of peer pressure are and how to, how, what, how to avoid certain effects of peer pressure, you have to make up in your mind as parents, what are the goals for my child? What is my aim to produce? What do I want to produce out of this child? What do I want them to look like, think like, act like when they're adults? Because this is all of our efforts are poured into this concept, right? What do I want them to be like? And how, perhaps, stark of a contrast is it to what you start with as your goals right here in these two verses? In verse 51, we see that Jesus was submissive to his parents. And we see that he made his mom proud. She treasured up these things in his heart. Because when he was away from her, when his character could have been called into question, when he could have been doing something devious, he was just in his father's house, doing the father's business. And verse 52, Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature, that's maturity, and in favor with God and man. So Jesus at 12 years old was fulfilling the goals that his parents had for him. That's what the, there, there, there was nothing else. This was priority. This was everything. We want him to grow in wisdom, favor, and stature with God and man. Jesus had three and a half years of his earthly ministry, from 30 to 33 and a half where he died on the cross, and he changed the world, turned it upside down in three and a half years, and he barely traveled. Like it says he traveled a lot, but you got to remember, he didn't have planes, trains, and automobiles. He was walking to wherever he was. He traveled a very small portion of a geographical location, and that spread out everywhere. Is that something that we want for our own children? Is that a desire that we have for them? For the impact that they have for the kingdom to be spread out in such a way? I believe that Jesus was so impactful in his three and a half years of ministry because of his 18 years of preparation between age 12 and age 30, when he was growing in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. So I got four points for you, and we got to move fast because you know me, I got a lot. And the first one is negative peer pressure prevention. Negative peer pressure prevention. How do we prevent our teenagers from giving in to peer pressure. So we got an awesome youth group here at Journey, and uh, one of the things we have that is a strength is that we have a really young youth group. We do. Most of our students are between 6th and 8th grade. We have a pretty big ninth grade class, and then 10th through 12th grade, they're beginning to dwindle off. For some of them, God and church just isn't the most important thing anymore. And for some of them, they're just really busy, and they come and go, and they're awesome. And some of them are even involved in other ways besides at church where they can get ministry experience, and that's really cool. I'm happy for that. But we have a very young youth group, and so we have a lot of them who really are dealing with peer pressure, but they're on the cusp of getting this really hard peer pressure. It's not quite here. Now, I know things are happening to students at a much younger age these days. I get that. But it hasn't changed too much since I was in high school and uh, pardon my language, but ninth grade is hell. It absolutely is. Ninth grade is the worst. When you make that transition from middle school to high school to ninth grade, the peer pressure begins to doubly stack up against you. And you're experiencing so many changes at ninth grade, which is usually about 15 years old. Ninth grade is rough. So a lot of these, we have the uh, privilege, the opportunity, if we'll seize it, to begin to instill values in them to prevent them from falling into negative peer pressure. And so 
If you have a child or if you know someone in that stage, it's like a preteen stage going into high school, I just have a few things for you. Uh, number one, thinking about why we give in to negative peer pressure. Why do we say yes to things that we shouldn't and say no to things that we should, which is good, you know, both of those. It's because at the very core of our teenagers, they're experiencing a substantial identity crisis. A substantial identity crisis. They don't know what their identity is. And so they flip the biblical narrative around. The biblical narrative, the story of the Bible teaches that we live from our identity. But students believe, and adults actually, anybody who falls to succumb to peer pressure, they believe that they live for their identity. And so if I want to be cool, I have to do particular activities that will inform my identity. My activities dictate my identity. Completely different from the Bible, where God says, you are children of God. I'm going to put my spirit in you. From your identity flows your activity. You're living from your identity, not for your identity. And so something that we do have a problem with in regards to uh, peer pressure and the way people live that out is, is that when we, when we find the Bible, when we think about, again, that narrative, when I say the narrative of the Bible, I mean you look at the whole Bible and you look at the story from start to finish, is that God always makes a point to establish relationship before he brings rules. Think about in the garden, he creates Adam and Eve, and he establishes himself as sustainer, provider, loving father, and then he gives them the rules. Hey, don't touch this tree. In Israel... He snatches his people out of Egypt and brings them into the wilderness and shows that he loves and cares for them, that he's working all things together for their good. He establishes relationship with them, and then he gives them the Ten Commandments. Then he gives them the rules. And so parenting, sometimes we can fall prey to this, especially if you're harder parents, which I am. I'm hard on my kids. Is that a lot of times when we give them rules without relationship, mm, rules without relationship always produces rebellion. Rules without relationship always produces rebellion. We can look at the Pharisees in Jesus' day. So many of them turning on Jesus. Rules without relationship always produces rebellion. I'm sorry I said that three times because it's so good. <laughs> because there's so many parents that I see that find teenagers doing something wrong and number one, they're shocked that they're doing something wrong. Like teenagers haven't been doing things wrong for years and years and years. They're shocked that they made a boneheaded decision. Like teenagers haven't been making boneheaded decisions for many, many years now. And they come in cold with their rules, and there's no relationship. That student has no obligation to listen to their parents. If there's no reward, if it's just upholding a standard that they can't keep, Now, I'm going to get to that standard. I know there is a standard. Don't get me wrong. Don't let your children run crazy. But let's get that right first. I came across an article in the Gospel Coalition. Uh, it's a website I follow this week. It was just this week. And it was an article entitled, Six Ways to Ruin Your Children. I don't know if I got the slides on these for them, but number one way is don't tell them that you're a sinner. Don't tell them that you're a sinner. That's a great way to ruin your children. Because what we have here is students who have this bar of expectation that they can never reach, and their parents are never open and honest with them. I want you to talk to your students and find out what they value in a person. And I promise you, after a couple of questions, you'll realize that students, they're not millennials. I'm a millennial. They're post-millennials. I don't know the name of this generation. But they value authenticity. They value authenticity. They're able to spot a fake and a phony 
and they're able to call them out on it, and they immediately lose trust in that fake or phony. Here's a couple of fakes and phonies that they're able to spot. Parents who are phony and churches that are phony. And they're able to call them out, and they begin to lose trust for them. That's why a lot of our students don't have trust for the local church. They don't, because they see hypocrisy, because they see phoniness. Why? Because they live in a phony world themselves. They're very used to it. They understand what it's like to put on a facade and to have a totally different heart behind it. And so one of the ways you can ruin your children is by living so detached, so cold from them, and maybe even have such high expectations that they don't even know that you're a sinner. You're never going to be able to teach them the doctrine of forgiveness or the doctrine of repentance. You know, how to know that a loving father forgives us no matter how many times we fail him. And not to know that a loving father loves us so much that he calls us to repentance, to a change of lifestyle. You're never going to be able to teach them that if they don't ever see sin in your own life. If you don't ever share with them, perhaps your testimony even. If they don't see you, one of the goals for us as parents is when we have kids at zero and when they leave our house at 18, 19, 20 years old, is that they see a sanctifying work in their parents' life over those years. They see their parents coming to grow in wisdom, favor, stature with God and man. Come to know the Lord more. Come to grow in holiness. They see a continuing and a a definitely more repentance for their lifestyle, a transformation. That's a good way to ruin your kids. Don't tell them that you're a sinner. Number two, don't ask them to forgive you for sinning against them. I'm just going to run through these. Number three, don't pray with them. So number three up there. Now, a lot of us pray for our kids. That's something I was taught really early on because my dad said he prayed for me every single night. And, uh, and I wanted to pray for my kids. But there's a difference between praying for them and praying with them. Yes. And so I encourage you, if you don't pray with your children, which I've tried to pray with mine every single night, and I hope I continue this when they're teenagers, because right now they actually want to pray with me, and I know there'll be time when they don't. But I, I hope and I encourage you to pray with them, because they're not going to learn how to pray unless they learn from you. And yes, there is a right way to pray. Yes, there is a right way to pray. Jesus did it, right? They came to him and they said, hey, tell you, what's the right way to pray, Jesus? And he says, this is how you should pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Y'all remember that one? There is a right way to pray. There is a God-centered instead of man-centered or woman-centered way to pray. And we need to teach our children to do that. We need to pray with them. Another good way to ruin your children, number four, don't do nothing with them, meaning If every activity you have with your children is based around getting them to soccer games or football games or band practice and you never spend quality time with your children, that's an excellent way to ruin your children. We've lost in our culture this sense of being able to sit and spend quality time with one another, to do nothing with one another. And this is how they're really going to learn from you. I like to discuss, and this message this morning is really more of a discussion than a sermon, because not everything I say is profound, you know, I'm just saying that. But if I sit and discuss with somebody for a long time, there's bound to be something that comes out that is. And so uh, I recently, a guy who's sitting in this room, spent uh, a night talking with him about the Bible till about one in the morning. And, uh, you know, it was about four or five hours of it, and you couldn't believe it. But one or two really profound things came out in that time. Do you spend quality time with your children to get to know their hearts and to let them get to know yours? Number five, don't love their mother or father well. And we've already touched on this in the series uh, in the past, recently, in Ruth. But hey, your marriage comes before your children. And you should love their mother and their father well. And they should see that in you so that they want to pattern that later in their life. 
Number six, don't continue family devotions if there are no immediate results. I don't have a lot of time here, but I just want to touch on this. Not a lot of people know what family devotions are and don't practice them, and I'm just kind of getting into this in my own family. We've just recently talked about doing it. I don't do it religiously, and I need to, because family devotions are where you get together. I know the Dale family does this. I'm just throwing it out there. Name drop. But they get together, and, uh, and they, they do some sort of Bible study, reading, uh, singing praises, hopefully at some time, and, uh, and they do it together collectively. They discuss. They have a family time together, which is absolutely biblical, and we'll touch on that more in just a second. And so these are some uh, ways to, to uh, promote peer pressure prevention, but my number two point is ministering in the midst of peer pressure. Peer pressure. Excuse me. That's a tongue twister. Ministering in the midst of peer pressure, because many of you have students who are currently going through peer pressure. Maybe some of them have already made a couple bad decisions, and you're not sure where they are. So you need to learn how to minister in the midst of peer pressure. Let me get you a glimpse of what peer pressure looks like for our students. When they come home from school, this you should be doing what I'm doing sort of social media craze is constantly plaguing them. It's constantly rolling around in their minds. They see their kids, you should be hanging out with this crew because this is what they do. This is cool. You should be doing this. You should be at this location. You should vacation here. I mean, really, it's plaguing them and it's swirling, it's swirling around in their head. And so a lot of times, man, you know, if you have a student, I am not the primary pastor for your student. Randy Nation is not the primary pastor for your student. You are the primary pastor for your student. You're the shepherd, mother and father, of your home collectively, and you should be leading them in all things spiritual. And so what we find is, is that, I don't know if you know much about pastoring. I don't. <laughs> I'm learning as I go. When I first started out, though, I viewed pastors like this, is that you would come to them only when you had a problem, and they would write you a prescription, you know, you should do this, take your Bible pill, one, two, three, you should go and do this, and it will fix your problem. And that's how I saw pastoring. And that's how many of you see pastoring, because from the outside looking in, that's what it looks like. That's not accurate. And for our children, a lot of times we take that stance. When something goes wrong, mom and daddy will bail you out, or they'll give you a prescription to fix what's wrong. And if you do those things, it'll all be made right. But that's not pastoring. That's not ministering. So I got a friend named Zach, and if you want me to be honest, because I don't want to lie on the stage, I actually just met him this week. He's an acquaintance, and he told this story. He's a pastor, and uh, he spent a lot of time out of seminary. He did his MDiv over at Asbury and did a doctorate degree in Mozambique, Africa, North Africa. And uh, he says that while he was over there, he got a lot of tickets because he's a really bad driver and they have strict laws. And so when you get over there, you can imagine when you go to a different country and you buy a car that you have to have a lot of stipulations in place as far as your license, insurance, and whatnot. And so he's got his car and he's riding around and he thought he had all of his T's crossed and his I's dotted, but he got pulled over one day and the guy said, hey, you're missing your sticker for your radio tax. It's a blue sticker. It goes on your window right here. And so in Mozambique, uh, if you drive a car with an antenna, they assume that you have a radio, and there's a radio tax. It's not very uh, expensive, but you have to have the sticker, right? And so he says he spends a day looking for where to get this radio tax at. The cop tells him just to drive to a tower, to a radio tower. Well, he goes to a few towers, and they're cell phone towers. They're not radio towers. And so Zach's a good old boy, and you can really tell he's a good old boy, because when he, all hope was lost, he thought, I know who will know where this radio tax place is, gas station attendant. That's where I'm going. I'm going to the gas station. And so Zach pulls up to the gas station, and he's getting the gas pumped into his car. Uh, apparently the guy, the way he tells the story, the guy's actually there pumping his gas for him. And he rolls down his window, and he hollers at him. 
See, he's a good old boy. He hollers at him, and he says, hey, I need to know where this radio tax place is so I can get my sticker for my radio tax. And the guy begins to get in the car with him, says, yes, I can help you out. Gets in the car with him. Zach hops out of the car on the other side as the guy's getting in this side because he knows he's getting carjacked in Mozambique right now. And they have a good laugh, and the guy says, no, 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 listen to this. He says, I could give you directions on how to get there, but you're so unfamiliar with the area, you still will never find it. Let me ride with you and go with you as we go to get this radio tax. In the book of Acts chapter 8, there's a story about Philip ministering to an Ethiopian eunuch in a chariot. And uh, Philip gets this word from the Lord to go and minister to this dude, and he goes and he gets in there. And the Greek word is kolahai, kolai, I'm not fluent in Greek, which means to join up, to journey with, to yoke oneself to him. And that's what God tells Philip to do. And so he gets into the, the carriage with this Ethiopian eunuch, and it says they ride down the road together. They journey until eventually they find water. Don't know if you know too much about the geography over there. There's a good chance they were riding a long time before they found water. And they go and they find a body of water, and Philip baptizes this Ethiopian eunuch. And so as pastors, as ministers of our home, I say all this to say this, is that a lot of times our job is to just to journey with our children, to join ourselves up to them. Are you present in their life? Do you know them? Are you walking daily with them? Are they seeing your spiritual life lived out on a daily basis with successes and failures? Are they seeing you walking with the Lord so that they too understand that they can walk with the Lord? Are they at a place where they can share things with you when peer pressure gets heavy? Are you journeying? Are you colorizing with them? Are you journeying with them and joining up with them? This is pastoral ministry. This is what we do, and this is what you guys are called to do as parents of your home and me as well. Number three, I got to finish quickly, hope and healing for those already damaged. This is not my biggest section, longest one, but that doesn't mean it's not the most important. So some of you have children who have really given in to peer pressure. Some of you have adult children who seem like it's way too late, too far gone. What do I do about these people? Well, Romans 12, 2 says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so I want to give you a glimpse of what a sinner's heart looks like, of what a rebellious heart looks like. Number one, their mind is absolutely depraved. The Bible says many times in the book of Romans, you can just pick a chapter and read it, that there's no good in us when we're born, that we're born enemies of God. We need a renewal of our mind. Totally. We need a new heart. Amen? That's what repentance is. We get rid of that old heart that beats for us. We get a new heart that beats for God. And so if your mind is in need of renewal, what does that tell you? If you're born with a bad mind, guess what? Your mind's the same level of badness at three years old than it is at 13 years old, than it is at 23 years old, 33, 43, 53. Apart from the saving work of Jesus Christ, your mind is the same. It's in need of renewal. And so we studied the book of Jonah back in uh, the summer with the teenagers, and I saw something in the book of Jonah that I'd never seen before. And here's the deal. I don't know if you know too much about Jonah, but Jonah was going uh, to Nineveh. The Lord called him to preach to this terrible city. He says, nope, I'm flipping the script. I'm going the opposite way to Tarshish. So he flees from the presence of the Lord. He finds a boat taking him away. And Jonah, though he was running as hard and headlong as he could away from God, no matter how far he got away from God, he looked back and realized that the gap between him and God had never gotten any bigger. Because as soon as Jonah puts his feet in the opposite direction of God and begins to run from God, that same God chases after Jonah continuously. This is the God that we serve. And so some of your children who are continuing to make bad decisions and you feel like they're too far gone, the reality is, is that there's no distance created between 
like them and the God of the universe because he chases us and pursues us throughout our life over and over again. And all they have to do is turn around and let him in to renew their mind and give them a new heart. This is what God longs to do in us. And so as you maybe live in a house with a stony-hearted teenager or a stony-hearted young adult that you have in your family, I want you to know that there is hope and restoration and healing that God wants to give them. He's a God who redeems, and he will do it by his grace. Number four, the last couple minutes of my message here, and these always get me in trouble. Parents, stop giving in to peer pressure. So peer pressure is not just a struggle for students and children. So I want you to analyze your heart for a second, parents, in regards to peer pressure, and think about what does success look, for in, look like in my life? What does success look like in my child's life? I'll give you a couple examples. Here's something that looks like success, that I've raised a good child. Number one, he's got a good-paying job. Number two, she's got a bachelor's degree. Number three, they got a nice house in a subdivision with a mortgage. Number four, they're going to delay their marriage until their late 20s, and maybe they're delay their children until their late 30s. They're limiting themselves to two or three children. God forbid, please don't have four, five, six children. That's what we think sometimes, right? Safety, a garage, a privacy fence, church attendance at least once a month, and at the very least, at least let my kids go to church on Christmas and Easter. This is what success for our children look like sometimes when we buy into the lie of this American dream and this culture that teaches us that we should be satisfied with felt successes like this. But the God of the universe calls us to so much more. He says the priority, even though most of these things are neutral, they have neither good nor negative value, but the priority of our lives is that we raise children that grow in wisdom, stature, favor with God, and man that make our Heavenly Father proud, that bear His name in a lost and dying world. That is the primary goal. So I plead with you not to be so easily satisfied, and please get awakened to the fact that you don't have a choice between being a radical Christian and a nominal Christian. The choice doesn't exist. It's a lie that American Christianity has promoted for about 50 years now because the Bible says there is no such thing as a nominal Christian. That if you are a Christian, then you are by nature radical, that you will be countercultural, that you will be persecuted, and your children will do the same, and you will have to be able to stand firm on the faith that has been entrusted to you and the faith that you're entrusting to your children. Kyle, uh, last week when he preached, he quoted C.S. Lewis, and this makes me think of those girls on that beach, man, that I had at the beginning of the message, when he said, this is from Mere Christianity and C.S. Lewis, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. God is calling us to make much of God by our joyful obedience to him. Joy is essential to the Christian faith. Are your, are your kids seeing that in you? And I want to submit to you is that in regards to peer pressure, in regards to raising children, that God is calling you to high desires. And so many times our desires stop at the ceiling. This is what we want out of our life, just what we can see. This is what we want from our children, just what we can see. And we drag them to soccer practice. We, we, we exasperate ourselves and them. We drag them to here and here and here and here. And we ignore the biblical mandate 
that we want our kids, you should want your kids, we all should want our kids to grow in wisdom, favor, stature with God and man. Pray with me this morning. Father God, we thank you for who you are, God, and I ask that you let every parent in this room understand that there is no condemnation for what they've already done. God, many of them have adult children. They've already ran this parental race. Some of them have teenagers, and there were things they should have nipped in the bud years ago. But, but God, I want you to please minister to their hearts and let them know that nothing is too far gone, that nothing is lost. And these teenagers need parents who stand firm on the Word of God. God, I pray that you... Uh, you minister their hearts and tell them that now, today, they can make a decision to begin to promote this in their homes, God. They can begin to read the Bible in their homes and have devotions in their homes, God. God, I pray that you do that miraculous work in their hearts, God. I pray that you don't let them leave here this morning still satisfied with being a passing grade of a Christian, with being a C Christian, God, but you see them and you instill in them high values and let them know that by the power of your Holy Spirit they can do this, God, and they can produce children that also have high values, that long in everything in their life to be submitted to the mandate that they want to grow in wisdom, favor, and stature with God and man. They want to grow to be like Jesus. I ask all this in your precious and holy name. Amen.